Welcome to the Business of Beverages, Drinks Industry Insights with Makers, Marketeers, and Mischief. In this episode, you'll learn how to do an equity pitch like a pro as we talk overproofs, offers, and optimum outcomes with the man who tamed TV's toughest dragons. Hello and welcome to the Business of Beverages. I'm your host, Mr. Will Keating, and I'm joined by my co-host and erstwhile friend, Mr. Podrick Foxy Fox. Hello, Will. So, what have you been up to lately? Uh, well, to be honest, I've actually been really busy on our social media profiles because our last episode, our last full-length episode, was about Brewdog. What the fuck, Brewdog? What the fuck, Brewdog? And loads and loads of, like, genuinely, really heartfelt thanks for myself and Will. Uh, we felt it was a great episode, but loads of comments coming in on Instagram, Twitter. You've had a lot on LinkedIn. We've yes. both got a lot of texts to kind of say it was the best episode we've done. People learned loads about Brewdog. I think they didn't know. Dave was just such a brilliant oh, guest. 100%. It, all down to Dave, to be perfectly frank, and his work. Many people have reported on Brewdog, and, and lots of the stuff we talked about had been in the print media, certainly before, and Private Eye had done great work, The Guardian had done great work. But in reality, I think Dave just brought it together in a really comprehensive and very conversational, easy-to-understand way. And we talked about numbers a lot in it, but having listened back to it, there was a lot of laughter. And actually, we got a we got a message from from Graham saying that uh, you know he, he had to pause it six minutes in because he was laughing so hard, and like that was just the introduction where we were running through the controversies. <laughs> yes, well, as we tried to say, I think we gave a pretty dispassionate look at it, and as far as I'm concerned, Brewdog are still a very interesting company. They're not somebody I'm going to boycott or disdain, but I will treat them the same as I treat any other company, you know, with a high degree of scepticism exactly and I think if you treat most people in life with a high degree of scepticism you probably come out better than the other side of many of your dealings uh, although to be fair I think that sometimes you come across people who you just take an immediate liking to and I'm delighted to say that our guest for this episode is somebody who I took an immediate shine to uh, I, th- I think you couldn't not take a shine to Tom uh, and at this point we have to say so Tom was on a UK TV show called Dragon's Den it's the UK equivalent to Shark Tank which is the American version I'm sure there's many other versions around the world uh, I'm not sure what version if there is a version for our one listener in Malawi <laughs> hopefully he's still there listening but basically the the idea is there are five very wealthy people who have a very strong background in business but they have invested you want to say very wisely in yes what they've done in the past and the idea is you go on you have a two minute pitch give or take to sell your product you as an entrepreneur go on and you pitch for essentially angel investment that that's exactly it business and there's various different ways it can work out for you you can be shown the door straight away you go in with an idea of i will sell two percent of my company for twenty thousand euro they will say I will give you 5,000 for 30% of your company. And sometimes it gets into a little bit of negotiating. You can walk away, you can take the investment. Sometimes you take it based on the money being offered, but sometimes you also may have one or two of the dragons bidding for your business. And then you get into kind of, I need to pick one here that is the best fit for my business, that it's not just about the money. So somebody might offer more money, but actually their expertise might be a little bit better in the long term. Yeah. So I have to say, um, most people, I think, will probably be familiar with the concept of Dragon's Den or Shark Tank or something similar. But very often for these programs, the pleasure is actually watching people crash and burn. And, you know, that's maybe a little bit of schadenfreude or, or what have you. But when the pressure comes on, some people just, no matter how much time and effort they've put into their businesses and how much effort they've put into their pitch in particular, they just fall apart. And when I watched Tom do his pitch, 
I was just blown away. It was a man who was comfortable not only in his surroundings, but in himself, I think. So at this point, I think we should tell people to go and watch the clip because yes. if you if you haven't seen it, you need to pause this podcast right now. Stop whatever you're doing. Go onto YouTube, type in Tom Horst, Rockstar Spirits, Dragon's Den, and just watch because from the moment he walked out, he, he wears this amazing jacket. I, I, like the jacket just... Tell me about the jacket. The jacket is like something that a, a mutineer or a pirate might wear in the 18th century. It's, it's high-buttoned gold. It's just... A lot of braiding. A lot of braiding. But not camp. No, and, and and not flashy either. Like, I don't think I could pull it off. And I definitely know you can't pull it off. But Tom <laughs> just pulled it off, walked into the room, and just, you know, three minutes later, had dragons eating out of the palm of his hand. Yeah, so we'll obviously get a link in the show notes so you don't have to go to YouTube. You can just go to our show notes uh, and click straight on the link to the episode of Dragon's Den. Highly advise it before you listen to, to Tom. By all means, you can uh, just stick with us and just listen away. That's no problem either. And actually, while you're there, you might get caught because this always happens to me when I go to YouTube to watch one thing four hours later. <laughs> I'm like watching other videos. While you're there, one of his products was featured on morning. this morning with Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield. And Holly Willoughby's reaction to tasting it, Tom references it. I think he doesn't do it justice. I think you have to have to see her tasting it and her reaction to get where he's coming from on that one. Yeah. The reason we wanted to have Tom on the podcast is because, first of all, he was recommended to us by uh, David Gluckman, who great friend of the show and all-round gentleman. So anybody that David says is interesting, we think is definitely going to be interesting. But then Tom was actually a complete gentleman to talk to. And his uh, take on the pitching process, the involvement of the business in Dragon's Den and actually how that worked out subsequently is, I think, fascinating. A great exercise, I think, in understanding negotiation and the power of your business. And also, I think just somebody who's taken a really unique view on the use of traditional media and social media. So many entrepreneurs these days focus everything on social media. And Tom is savvy enough to try and blend the two. Yeah, he recognizes the value of like the national media, so like the Philip and Holly thing, but Tom's, his own social channels are really engaging. Like he does take the time to respond to questions, respond to comments. Um, like, you know, if he's gone to a business meeting, he tells you what he's doing. And it's mm-hmm. it's actually really interesting from, you know, if, if you're working in sales or whatever, just to see how he goes about his day. He, he's very open and honest on his social channels and well worth a follow. Yeah, so I think towards the end of this podcast we get away from the Dragon's Den stuff and just more into business strategy for Rockstar Spirits and I think that uh, these guys are going to do a huge amount of business all over the world so if they're not in your market yet you're definitely going to see they're coming they're coming right well let's get straight to it Um, let's talk about that jacket So we are delighted to be joined by Mr. Tom Hurst today. Tom is the founder of Rockstar Spirits. Um, Tom also has had an appearance on Dragon's Den. And uh, basically, Tom, my first question for you. When you appeared on Dragon's Den, your sartorial elegance walking out of that lift, that jacket was amazing. Yes. Yeah, the jacket was really important, actually. The, The jacket was kind of to replace... A lot of, you know, we couldn't put on a show. We couldn't have music and, and dancing. So you want it. And I couldn't wear my branded um, stuff. So it was like, well, how can we make something that people are going to sort of look at and stand out and, and remember? It was one of, I think it was the thing my first ever sales manager said to me was, always be memorable, no matter what. So that's always stuck with me. Just for people who haven't seen it, can you describe the jacket? Yes. The default trope for 
for rum tends to go down the tiki vibe, doesn't it? And Hawaiian shirt kind of thing. That seems to be, you know, what what, what most people sort of go for with rum. And it was like, well, I can't, I can't wear a Hawaiian shirt on Dragon's Den. It would have been memorable, but yeah, I was like, I can't do that. So we're like, well, what's the other kind of big thing that always gets associated with the rum? It's navy. So we wanted it to have that kind of naval theme. And then obviously a lot of the story of certainly the Two Swallows brand is relating to my great uncle, who was a naval captain, Captain Matthew Webb. So we were kind of linking into that history of rum and then also sort of linking into the, the brand story with, with Captain Webb in terms of it being like a naval jacket. Uh, and then I've got uh, <laughs> I've got a, a, a weirdly long torso. <laughs> so it's quite a long jacket. I've got tiny little stubby legs and a really long body. So the nice thing about having a tailored jacket is that it was, you know, it was quite a nice sort of long, so more like, a, you know, a three quarters coat length, which is a bit more kind of flattering when you've got a little stubby legs and a big tummy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually brilliant because I, I didn't pick up on the naval element of it. I, I, to me, it really looked kind of like almost like a, a business mutineer walking into the, oh, okay. well, we'll into the stage. That. I'm loving that. Yeah, we'll go with business mutineer. I'm, I'm just let me write that down. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it fit with the whole rock star brand because you walked out like a rock star and it was like, there we go, business mutineer. Yeah, well, that's it. You kind of, that's what my wife said. She's like, well, you, you better do a good job because you, you know, you call yourself rock star spirits and you're sort of giving it the, giving it the beans. You can't really you, you know, get ripped to shreds by the dragons. Your company, as you mentioned, is called Rockstar Spirits. Yes. You were already launched ahead of your appearance on Dragon's Den and were quite successful already. Why did you choose to go on Dragon's Den if you know, you'd know you already launched a successful company? The main thing, really, is that it's a challenge. So one of the things that I've tried to do, and, and that was really the start, starting the business as well. So I kind of got to that stage in life where my career had gone, you know, really well, I think, on paper. And you know, there wasn't really anywhere to to go in terms of career. I kind of got to the most senior position that I could probably get to uh, in the companies that I was working at. And you think, well, you know, is this, do I want to do this now for 20 more years until retirement? And the answer was definitely no. <laughs> no, I want to, you know, take on a challenge and do something and try and make uh, an impact. So... I met a whole load of other kind of young guys in the twenties who all started their own business in clothing and you know different types of things. And I was like, wow, this is amazingly inspirational. You can, you know, use social media and you can do your own thing these days. So Dragon's Den was kind of just another extension of that. So whenever I get something and think, oh, that's a bit nerve wracking. I'm not sure I should do that. Then I, I kind of say yes and force myself to do it. Because what's the what's the worst that can happen, right? Um, yeah, national humiliation <laughs> in front of five million people. Yeah, I'll be fine. So uh, yeah, it was really just all about that challenge. You, one of the things you, <laughs> you you don't get when you run your own business is uh, an annual appraisal, and that is amazing. Uh, not to have to kind of go through that every year. So it was it was kind of like having the you know the most challenging annual appraisal you could ever get on national BBC, on national TV. So I was just curious, though, did you set out your specific ambitions for what you wanted out of the programme before you you applied? Uh, Or did you just put your hat in the ring and see how it went? So we always have a strategy and, you know, there's always a reason why we're doing something uh, for for the business. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't make the decision to do it. Um, so, you know, the big thing really with you know, Dragon's Den, like you say, the business is actually doing okay. You know, we've got product in supermarkets and we've got a nice range of products. Um, we're, I think one of the things I'm quite proud of is that, you know, it's set up in a, an old school way. So we actually do make money and grow the business out of the money that we make rather than, I know a, a lot of things you see on Dragon's Den, are, you know, we've got a million pounds funding and then they go through the figures. It's like, oh, how much money have you made? Well, we've lost a million pounds. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, good one. <laughs> I'll invest. <laughs> so that's always a, tr- a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I get it. Sometimes you've got to, you know, you, you've got to um, invest the money to build the business before you get there. But you know, we've always we've tried to build organically um, and, and, and grow the business out of you know realistically, so it's a profitable business. Um, so when the opportunity for Dragon's Den came along, it was like, well, we can't really, um, you know, say no to this because this is going to, you know, be really helpful. We didn't know when it was going to be, to be fair. Um, the original kind of conversation was probably February 2020. Um, so before lock, pre-lockdown, we um, had sort of got the agreement that we were going to be on the show. Um, the goal with going on the show was, um, you know, to, to help um, shift our kind of consumer awareness back again from where we were. We, we had this amazing launch and sort of period where uh, we were featured on this morning and Holly Willoughby and Phil just went crazy for Pineapple Grenade and that really gave us a, a, you know, a massive sort of boost in that sort of early stage of the business. So the goal was to get the, um, you know, the dragon or dragons on board, which then give you know it's kind of a, a gold star for your business, isn't it? And it makes you much more um, appealing to people going forward because you've you know you've got this the endorsement of of the dragons or the dragon, and um, that you know it opens a lot of doors, I guess, for in terms of customers, but also in terms of sort of ongoing uh, media and, and and PR awareness. And you know when you're a, a, a when you're a small business and um, you know, we can't afford to pay a million pounds for an advertising campaign on ITV, but if you keep with your PR, you can kind of have the effect by, you know, being on this morning and, and, and being on Dragon's Den. So it wasn't, I guess the short answer is it wasn't about the money. It was about, um, you know, trying to get that endorsement from the Dragons and uh, then that ongoing kind of, um, you know, PR ability that you get from the show. Yeah, a month or two after the show, um, we'd already kind of significantly changed the business as to where we were. So um, that then puts in a different slant in terms of future investment as well. So, you know, if we want to really uh, exploit moving internationally, then you, you know, you're looking at a much bigger uh, sum of money to, uh, to, to achieve those goals, really. Do you, do you think that because for you it wasn't about the money, that helped. So before you walked out onto the floor, like you see an awful lot of people really fall apart on Dragon's Den, which I guess is part of the appeal to somebody watching it. It's like, do they know their figures? But you walked out. In your head, did you have, because you've worked in sales for a long time, like you, you can negotiate. Um, did you have a, a thing in your head of like, okay, if I get two dragons to bite, that'll represent success for me. Did you have a target in your mind before you started the pitch to them? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in terms of a target, honestly, all I really wanted 
was that they would like the product because he was like, well, you know, I can um, got thick enough skin if they don't like me or you know, they, uh, you know, they, they don't like the figures or you know, there's something about the business that's fine, and that'll probably be chip paper next week anyway. You know, people will forget about that bit. Um, but if if, you, if we'd have gone out there and they'd have said, oh, this is absolutely disgusting. And uh, then I, that, I, I could not have lived with that. That would have been horrendous. So that was the that was the main risk, if you like. But the, they wouldn't like the products. I could kind of live with anything else. Um, I guess the target was to secure a deal as well. I, I see a lot of the time people get to the stage and they get the offers and then they 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 sort of decline a deal. You just think, well, that's, it's it's disappointing, isn't it, as a viewer? I always think you think, oh, what are you doing? You know, you've sort of gone, you've jumped through all the hoops. You managed to get to, you know, the prize of the, uh, you know, of the, of the of the show, and then you've kind of walked away. It always feels really disappointing. Strategically, from you know, if we want to sort of talk properly about the business side of things, there was you know a limit to the. Uh, so the reason I started my own business was, and we were talking a bit about David Gluckman, who's been on the show before. Uh, the reason I started my own business was I just didn't want anyone to tell me what to do anymore. <laughs> uh, so I just, I just want to make all my own decisions uh, and not have, you know, anyone saying, you know, I, I, to- I think this is a big thing that David always goes on about. The sort of design by committee never results in, um, you know, a good outcome. And I 100% agree with that. It just waters down everything. So all, all, with Rockstar, the got you know I just design everything myself to my exact personal taste, and then hope that the will comes with you, kind of thing. The 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 equity was always a sort of maximum amount, so we never have gone more than eight percent. So I never wanted to give away more equity than that because then I retain complete control of all decision making, and no one can ever have any input on any actual decisions for the business. That was that was really important because that was the whole point of starting it. You know, had you specific dragons in mind in your kind of in dream scenario? Did you? I, I, is it too difficult for you to say? Oh, of course, I wanted my the dragons I ended up with, but <laughs> oh, uh, I, I always have to tell the truth, so I can't lie. Peter Jones is the guy, isn't he? Really. Uh, uh, so yeah might get me in trouble but you know he's he is the sort of standout guy um but yeah slightly contentious but yeah it was um i'm not gonna lie it was a bit disappointing to find that he had covid because he he would have been uh off the record obviously no one's listening um (laughs) uh, he probably would have been my first choice of uh of dragons just with that you know the old well the, the, the the biggest uh, retail success story is is Levi Roots, isn't he? So, yeah, he's he's the guy behind that. From a retail point of view, you know, he's got the track record, being able to launch brands. Uh, it's particularly strong in that retail field as well. When I was at William Grant's, for example, there was a kind of standard brand building model for, for drinks brands, and it would centre on, you know, a good two or three years ploughing your trade in the on-trade before you even thought about pitching to get into grocery and sort of major multiple off-licence chains. And that's totally changed now with the kind of craft beer revolution and the gin revolution. Consumers are really interested in new stuff and much more willing to kind of pay 20, 30 pounds for a bottle of spirits, you know, even without kind of having tried it before. I think there's a much more uh, openness in consumers to sort of trying new brands, which has been interesting. Um, So you can kind of go straight to retail. You know, there's no way 
10, 15 years ago, Sainsbury's would take on a brand like mine and pop it straight into 300 stores. So, you know, the market has changed from that point of view. I do think it's brilliant that like the, the dragon you kind of focused on couldn't make the show because of COVID. But then you ended up with four dragons who were willing to drop their equity ask to get in yeah. on your business. Like that, that was a, and you didn't even have to negotiate that hard to get no, to that point. I'll be honest. By the time you get to that stage, uh, I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> you say, uh, nor- normally in a negotiation, you know, I'm quite, I, I enjoy, you know, that's what I love. It's just a, a, the thrill of the deal and negotiating all the fine points. But yeah, honestly, on Dragon's Den, it's so intense. Literally, the first thing was we just wanted them to like the product. So they liked the product and it was like, okay, right, this is great. I'm relaxing and I'm enjoying this now. And then and then the office, because I hadn't really thought about that. I just thought about, you've got to get the pitch right. I must have watched hundreds of episodes of Dragon's Den and Shark Tank to, go, to get all the questions and you know work out everything they could possibly ask, which is not that many. They're kind of, you know, it's the same questions every time. So I'm always a bit surprised when people haven't sort of researched the numbers and stuff. Um, but uh, we, we, once, yeah, so I hadn't really thought that much about negotiating the deal. And then when the office started coming in, then you just your head goes. Then you just kind of think, yeah, this is like a dream. This is amazing. Can't believe this is actually happening. Yeah, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I could have negotiated that a bit harder, I reckon. But no, it was all right. I think, wasn't it? It wasn't too bad. I thought it was very impressive. I, I was, uh, I won't say blown away, but uh, I thought your sales experience came to the fore straight away when you you turned back to the dragons and said, well, what if I pay you back in year one? Yeah. You know, can you revise your equity stake? And they all did immediately. You then, you know, asked them, would they be willing to combine offers and, and you, you were going to double your exposure and double your experience at no cost to yourself? Yeah, it was, um, it was, um, like I say, it was all, it was all a bit like a, a sort of out of body experience by then. You know, it's kind of slightly deceptive on TV because it's 10 minutes or whatever. Probably about an hour and a half in reality, the whole sort of pitching and questioning process so it was, you know there's so much more stuff that went on and information kind of gone through uh, i'm gonna get myself in trouble again here. the the dragons were considerably more uh, merry as well <laughs> on the edit there was um so they had seven shots of, of rum and then two cocktails so uh, if you want to see it again closely you can see there's not that much drinks left on most of the tables so it was quite fun. <laughs> well, myself and Will have just made like completely shocked faces at your revelation that you can take like an hour and a half for the pitch. Fairly standard. I don't think that's particularly uh, unusual. Well, obviously, probably if it doesn't go well, it might be. It's, probably, it's like any business meeting, isn't it? If it doesn't go well, it's 10 minutes. And if you have it, you know, if it's going well, it can be like a couple of hours. Um, so, yeah, it was, so there's a, yeah, it's a lot more intense and there's a lot, you know, Loads, loads more information that's shared, I guess. You sort of go into quite a lot of finite detail about the business. And uh, it was actually the third time that I'd kind of prepared for it as well because it kept getting cancelled because of uh, COVID and stuff. So, yeah, so I'd learned the the pitch and the, and the numbers a lot of times. Uh, I think when, my, when the second time it, it got cancelled, my wife was like, you have got to be joking me if I have to listen to that pitch ever again. <laughs> it was frustrating at the time, but it's probably turned out for the best in the end that you've had, that, you know, had, a, had so much preparation time for it. Yeah, you came across when you were making your pitch and they asked you the question on numbers, you were so confident. And, you know, it was just 
year two, year three, it was just literally reeling it off. And you could just see Theo Fafitas sit back and go, oh, hang on, there's just too many doubling of figures yeah. happening in this. And then three minutes later, he's offering you double the cash that anybody else yeah. is offering. Yeah, so, I mean, the numbers were robust. They're, you know, they're based on actual, you know, what we've achieved. And the reason it's doubling up, because that's kind of, you know, it's just me in the business. And that is a realistic sort of achievable number each year, basically, because, you you know, I'm confident enough that we'll retain everything that we've got based on how it's performing at the moment. And then, obviously, uh, if you are performing well in Sainsbury's, for example, it makes it a lot easier. You've got a good case study to go to the other grocers and other retailers and stuff like that. So you, you can be fairly confident that you're going to be able to sort of add in other similar deals that will sort of get you to the number. Um, so, yeah, th- and, and then, you know, we're coming to this is my year end is June. So, you know, we've done those numbers. Um, so I'm pretty confident that we can achieve them. And then that was always that sort of five, six year end goal number uh, was, you know, something we've had in mind since conception of the business and I think that's fairly robust again in terms of being achievable and based on um, not just you know the, the business now based on how other brands have got you know that I've worked on so Sailor Jerry for example um, was a product that we launched in the team that I was at with William Grants so it's kind of you know utilizing that the numbers from that you know, into where I think we can kind of take Rockstar in in, in that sort of time period. Uh, and I guess the difference being that we haven't got the marketing budget of um, uh, William Grants would have done, you know, 15 years ago. The, you know, I think Sailor Jerry was £2 million above the line marketing budget in year one in the past. The, because the world's changed and you've got social media and sort of this sort of thing. And, and I, I guess the other thing is as well, being kind of the... Um, having a public face of the brand. So that's something I always try and sort of push as myself as that kind of human face of the brand. It's quite it's quite a powerful sort of tool, I think. So you, it gives you a, an advantage, I guess, over other corporate brands, which obviously have the marketing budget, but they don't necessarily have that, you know, approachability or authenticity that, that we've got, hopefully. Yeah, so I, I concur completely with what you're saying but i i find it curious because so many startup brands focus nowadays almost exclusively on that social media campaigning whereas actually your biggest wins have really come through uh, traditional media that kind of you know television that almost out of date concept but uh, can you explain to people what happened with you mentioned holly willoughby and this morning but for those who are international listeners can you explain what sort of a breakthrough being featured in a program like that was as well i I don't think i realized beforehand quite what uh, an influential show this morning is so again for people who are not familiar it's a mid-morning magazine show and daytime show and and, you know they cover Everything, don't they? So they they cover news items and food and drink and all, all sorts of things. Phil and Holly, the presenters, are really well sort of national treasures, really, in terms of uh, presenting duo, and they both really like a drink. Um, so as kind of an endorsement for a product, it doesn't really get any better than that. But yeah, I hadn't really thought that through at the time. It was just like, okay, great, they've asked for a product uh, to be sent in to go on TV. Let's let's go with it. And then I think. The reason for its success, and I think this is a very modern thing as well, 
is the authenticity of the reaction of, of Holly in particular to the product. So again, there was a lot of, it, it might have been a bit of a chance kind of encounter a sort of, you know, one of the production team must have seen, oh, it was an item on flavoured spirits. So they must have, something must have come up when they typed flavoured spirits in Google. And my product was one of the things that came up. But they just, it was the power of the reaction of Holly to tasting the product. And the product was pineapple grenade. So the 65% uh, pineapple and salted caramel rum. Pineapple grenade was the first product we released because I thought it would be the the one not necessarily that would sell the most, but would be the most likely to get PR coverage because there still wasn't that much products in the um, spice rum category. Uh, there was only one pineapple rum, really, that was for the plantation pineapple rum. It's a fantastic product, completely different, really, to what I do. It's all, um, you know, it's a beautiful sipping rum, very delicate and subtle. Whereas none of my stuff is delicate and subtle. It's kind of the Ron Seal, uh, you know, if it's, if it's called pineapple grenade, it can't be delicate and subtle. It's kind of got to be, it's got to do what it says on the tin. Um, but I thought the idea was that we're taking this overproof category that's traditionally dark, challenging spirits that, you know, your average consumer would find very challenging as a taste profile. Um so you've got the excitement of 65% and, oh, this is going to, you know, what's this, how is this going to taste? Is it going to, you know, blow my head off? Is it going to be, you know, horrendous and kind of, you know, be really challenging? And then the sort of realisation that actually it's really enjoyable, easy drinking, sort of well-rounded, smooth spirit. And that was completely encapsulated by Holly Willoughby's face when she tried the rum. So it was this kind of, you know, nervousness about tasting it and then this kind of, realization on the face that it was actually really you know quite an enjoyable experience and that just cut through with the consumer phenomenally well it was i think it's it, it was certainly the highest viewed instagram clip uh, on this morning's page that year uh, it was featured again at the end of the series as one of their moments of the year it was you know it went viral everywhere it got loads and loads of sort of you know coverage in um, the press so it's just, uh, you know, completely unengineered. And you sort of think, is that a lucky break or is it, you know, by design to a certain extent because that was what it was created to do. And, it, you know, we'd, we'd had a quite a good presence online and social. So that was, you know, got captured. So it came up when someone types in, you know, when they're looking for yeah. flavored spirits, it came up at the top of the list. Uh, but, yeah, that was a heck of a, a heck of a good break. Sold out everywhere in about an hour. So I saw it and I was like, that was amazing. That was really good. And then went off to a business meeting. And then I was just, my phone was like, ping, 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 ping. And it was like, in my distribution part, I say, got to get more. We've sold, you know, every, we've, everyone's ordered all the stock. Amazon's just t- taken all the stock. Master and it's like, and it was about, it was about a month till we could sort of get ingredients and get everything made and sort of be back in stock. So, but yeah, what a, what a sort of moment on the journey and a real, you know, kind of a catalyst to, to the business as you said you know it's a moment of luck but it's a moment of luck which has been engineered by all your choices yeah yeah i think so you know, having a differentiated product having the presence online um and having a, uh, ultimately that moment of truth that product truth of when holly sips the the drink you know she has a revelation and and it's an authentic reaction to that and and that happens through the through the traditional media channel 
uh, of TV. It gets it gets a, a reach that's simply not possible through any other media. But then, as you say, it gets amplified by the reaction on social. It was so unengineered in terms of the reaction. Um, you know, it was just a genuine reaction to the product, and that cut through to the public. Um, you know, so so well, and then also I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head really in terms of and what we've tried to do since with the learning of that was you know any sort of TV, radio, and stuff like that is great, and it's but it's not just the um, that moment; it's then utilizing that as the content on your social media. Well, Dragons Den is probably a better example, I think, um, of the fact it's a bit like a badge, isn't it? That you kind of I've been on Dragons Den, and you can kind of it feels like, judging by other people that have been on there and done well, you can pretty much refer back to it forever. <laughs> it, even the ones that don't work still claim, you know, as seen on Dragons Den. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was a funny thing. Um, I got <laughs> when when it sort of was coming when it was coming up, or just after it had been on, and people hadn't seen it, and they sort of ask, and I'd be kind of perhaps chasing to try and get some media coverage or something like that. We would ask, "Oh, did you, did it go well?" I was like, "Well, I wouldn't be chasing you to try and get coverage of it if it didn't go well." <laughs> what I was curious about, though, was once you've done the deal, how much involvement do the dragons have? And is it a case that you you get the money, you get the exposure from the show, and you know come back to us, you know, when you've got something to say, or is there any net benefit or hands-on involvement that they that they can provide? Yeah, this is a tricky. I can't really answer this one yet. I'm afraid, because um, we still haven't actually completed, um, a, you know, an actual deal, um, yeah. and probably have alluded to that really. I guess earlier on in the fact that the business has changed so much since the show. So um, well, yeah, we've done all the due diligence and everything, but um, from my point of view, we need to renegotiate the terms because that valuation is. You know, for, for, from my standpoint, no longer viable. Um, based on you know, like I say, I mean the Australian thing is just absolutely, you know, monstrous. So four products are on shelf now uh, in every single town in Australia, and they've just been have been amazing to be honest with you to deal with. Uh, we've obviously uh, in the news recently has been the um, UK trade deal with Australia. So it's the first post-Brexit um, sort of big free trade deal. Uh, we're actually so I've actually I'm actually one of the poster boys for it. Would you believe it? Department of International Trade have made a little video about my deal with um, uh, Australia to kind of sort of you know help promote other people to to, to start exporting to Australia. And so that's five percent um, added into um, Endeavour Woolworths Endeavour's margin basically straight away on my Mm -hmm. products, which if you know anything about retail, basically you've got to hit a 25% retail margin for the customer to warrant putting it into their range. But if you can take that up to 30%, then you're kind of gold-plated. This is a very attractive product to have in the range, which, you know, again, as a a small, anyone who's kind of in drinks will know that it's a challenge to get listed in these big retail beasts. But then the real challenge is sticking and getting, you know, retaining the listing is the real challenge. And it's the same thing with, with you know, with the guys in Australia. So now we've sort of moved into that. They're making a really nice margin on our products. It's um, exciting times again. And we've kind of got a nice model now for 
international expansion. I think if you see a product in a supermarket, subconsciously generates an awareness, doesn't it? I think I always sort of yes. see something in the supermarket, then it, it's almost like an endorsement again, isn't it? Oh, it's a real a real product. I think that was one of the things I found when we first started off and you get, you know, a retailer like Selfridges. Because if uh, whenever you sort of speak, tell someone about what you do, oh, well, where's it stocked? And if you reel off some good retailers, and they go, oh, right, oh, it's like a real thing. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> In an omni-channel world, you know, a lot of the traditional uh, routes have broken down. But if you are, if people can sample you in the on-trade and then see you in the off-trade, it's, uh, it's much easier to cross-convert. Likewise, if people have seen you in the supermarket on the shelf and they realize that you're a real product, it's a lot easier to convert them online. Yes. You know, and, so and it, it does reinforce across the channels. And people too often think of them as silos, uh, whereas they are interconnected and they're heavily interconnected, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've kind of got quite a cute model now to roll out to Europe quite quickly so we can kind of, you know, work with, you know, we've got enough, I guess, examples of this will work in your, um, you know, retail business um, to give, give buyers confidence. And then we've got a great relationship with Amazon. It's a lot easier than, you know, if you had to build a distribution network and a team of salespeople and sort of, you know, you can have quite a good reach really with just uh, an Amazon and a, and a big retailer. Uh, and obviously it's kind of shown on Dragon's Den as well. The plan has always been to create an exit for the business. So you kind of want to, you know, if you can demonstrate you've got a presence in a significant amount of markets, then that makes that exit plan a bit easier. So with all the, the huge positivity that's that's coming and all these new markets opening up for you, like the six year exit plan might come a little bit quicker. Um would you would you put would you put yourself sitting in a dragon's chair should that happen? Oh, oh <laughs> me out here because I, I actually said this the other day and it sounds particularly big headed, but that was um that would be a, well the, I sort of preface it with what i after the exit, or maybe if things are going extraordinarily well. It might be something you could do sort of concurrently. But the end goal is really what I'd really like to do would start a, a kind of drinks incubator business um, to help other people, you know, on their own journey of, of starting a drinks brand. Because I think, you know, there's loads and loads of people who've, who've got great ideas, but that start period is so tough. So that's the goal, really. That's what I'd really like to do. Um so that would be fantastic. But yes, yeah, secretly, just between me and you, it would be nice to go back onto the show as a dragon. <laughs> Brilliant. Tom, be- before we finish up, where can people buy your spirits? Oh, that is a good question. So if you go to our website, which is rockstarspirits.co.uk, um, the front page of it has hyperlinks that go to all our different retailers. Or, the, the, I mean, the easy one, everything's on there with Freenex Delivery, is Amazon. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Having spent this time with you, I can understand perhaps how there was an hour and a half in the uh, Dragon's Den <laughs> pitch. <laughs> Tom, what Tom, a guy. Tom is just brilliant. Tom, rock star. But, but he is, but, but he's like a, a relatable rock star. Like, I, I would go for points with Tom. A hundred percent. Um, I would thoroughly enjoy having a conversation that I knew I didn't have to edit as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, God, God love you. You had to do all the editing on that one. Yeah. But even the day he spoke to us, like he was just 
so full of life and energy and life is great and it was just it's just refreshing to come across somebody whose job is to sell stuff uh, which can be quite a grind and he just loves it he's just in such good form and I, I think a lot of the stuff we, we clipped out but he went on some amazing tangents just talking about work-life balance the decision to start a business uh, his ambitions and and really I think uh, we, got, we got into some nicely philosophical uh, points about really the advantages of working for yourself and being able to go to the school play for the kids and being able to take an afternoon off but also be focused about how to be really successful and then when you need to be like he was for Dragon's Den to be pitch perfect about your business and the advantages that there are for people out there yeah I, there's a, a thing I read reasonably recently uh, I'm not sure if that's the exact title of it but the, the CEO mindset yes. and a lot of it is like you know, how you focus in focus in but it, it actually doesn't leave a huge amount in it for kind of the other part of your life, which is, you your know, all, actual all, life. your actual life, which is actually in the long term, the stuff you're probably going to be remembered for. Uh, but Tom just seems to have like the CEO mindset of like the drive and the, the desire to be as good as he can be in his chosen field, but also knows kind of, you know, actually I've got kids. They're in plays. I'm going to go watch them. I'm going to go out and enjoy the sunshine. I'm going to go have a cup of coffee over here. I think he's just got this amazing blend where he's managed to, mix his professional and personal life just just perfect and yeah. it's it it's honestly is something to aspire to and he said a uh, great quote he said at the end um you know nobody's going to sit in their deathbed and wish that they went to more meetings <laughs> that, yeah. that is so true um so i also loved the really strategic thinking that he had around creating a completely differentiated product you know, so pineapple grenade, passion fruit grenade, the two swallows brands. But that idea of saying, you know, do you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to maximize the exposure I get from my products based on the really interesting products themselves. So a salted caramel and pineapple overproof rum. Who'd have thought? The other thing I really liked about it as well is that if you look at the branding on the, like, you know, two swallows, very different brand from the, the, the pineapple rums. But it's that little nod to Rockstar on the label I think is uh, on the, the neck label I think it's just really really well done because we're in a day and age where you know big companies small companies diversify into different lines of different products sometimes you have no idea that the product is being made by the same company that also makes this product and it's just that little thing of I'm proud to put my name on it it's going on the top the thing might look different but you know it's still coming from Rockstar yeah and I think to be fair there's a lot of strategic thinking gone into that as well because he's looking at a portfolio play he's and eventually, I imagine, and he's stated openly, you know, he's looking at somebody coming along and, and helping to buy that business and looking at the opportunity to expand that portfolio and include it in their own. So uh, a clever, clever man. Uh, great, uh, great bit of crack as well. He was crack. He was just yeah. pure crack. Um, I haven't seen Pineapple Grenade on the, sale, uh, on the shelves in Dublin, but if I do, I'm going to buy one. Absolutely, and uh, the Australian expansion that he mentioned at the time, um, bizarrely, I was I was trying to find an image of it for for something, and the first results in Google is the Australian, like really Dan Murphy's that he talks about. They're a huge, huge, huge chain, and they are pushing the hell out of it. It is flying over there. Yeah. Well, fair play to him, and uh, fair play to his SEO as well. So, congratulations to Tom. Uh, fascinating interview, uh, and one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Bags packed, trunks on, sunscreen in the bag. Time to hit the desert island. <laughs> um, this time I've gone for something a little bit different uh, in terms of guest selection. Uh, I know you don't know this guy, but we have Mr. Victor Lanson or Monsieur Victor Lanson 
Monsieur Victor Lanson uh, on the desert island today. And who is Monsieur Victor Lanson? Um, so with a name like that, it won't surprise you to learn that he's French. Uh, and he is a champagne aficionado. Uh, and he will tell, he'll tell us himself, uh, at length, in fact, about his career in champagne. But essentially, if you want to put it simply, he was a champagne salesman for um, the vast majority of his career and an excellent one at that. Did he bring champagne to the island? <laughs> You're going to have to wait and see. Um, but this is an extended edition because, to be fair, once we started talking about champagne with Victor, uh, he just couldn't stop. <laughs> I couldn't stop. Him. But I, w- I didn't want to stop him because it was absolutely fascinating to learn a lot more about a beverage that, to be perfectly frank, I hadn't a clue. Um, you know, I knew it was bubbly. I knew you could get it in vintages. Uh, I knew that it came from the specific region in France, the Champagne. Uh, but in reality, beyond the fact that it was expensive, I didn't really understand why it was expensive or how it gained its notoriety, how it became a byword for celebration, um, you know, and... and you know, Champagne Charlie's, for example. So uh, I had to ask, and Victor was only too happy to answer. Can you tell me, please, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Victor. I've been uh, in the UK for the past 27 years. And up until two years ago, I was in the drinks industry. What did you do in the drinks industry, Victor? Yeah, started at uh, Laurent Perrier for, uh, oh, I think it was three months because I studied uh, uh, wine in Champagne, as I'm from Reims, and uh, I went to see Laurent Perrier, and uh, they say, you're married to an English girl, so you go to Laurent Perrier UK. And so I went, I think it was in September 94, and I started as uh, the assistant of the financial director. That was my first job at Laurent Perrier. It was good fun. I enjoyed it. And then after I did sales and I was uh, uh, introduced to, well, trained uh, by great guys, great salespeople, good guys, full of character. An opinion. Did any of that opinion rub off on you, do you think, over the years? Slightly. Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> and did you yeah. stay with Lauren Perry for long or did you move within the business? Uh, three years, three, four years. And then I set up my own business, importing wines and uh, importing a champagne, which was a little gem at the time. It's not anymore, but uh, called uh, Champagne Delbecq. Then I had uh, the great idea of creating my own champagne, <laughs> my own ah. brand, called Champagne Victor, who was quite successful. I'm the first brand ever in the history of uh, IWSC to have won the trophy on the first year of uh, presenting my champagne. Fantastic. I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was good. And uh, so I was selling uh, about 100,000 bottles on my own, no money, no budget, new brand in the most uh, branded environment. And uh, 2008 came and my banker (laughs) had a short sense of humor. So he stopped uh, letting me 
monies. So <laughs> I went, uh, I closed down the business and, yes. um, and, uh, I had a fantastic interview with the MD of first drinks, uh, William Grants UK. And, uh, his question was, uh, can you look after Piper Heidsick as it's your own brand? Because we know nothing about champagne. We're very good in spirits, but champagne is not our thing. So I said, yes. And he said, can you make money out of it? I think I said, I think I can. So he said, okay, well, we'll meet once a year then. <laughs> and I <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so that, it, they, they were good fun years until they, 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 they became a bit too corporate. But uh, that's their problem. Do, do you think that because you were selling champagne for so long, you had to live a champagne lifestyle? I was born in Champagne, so I was always in contact with Champagne, and uh, I absolutely adore Champagne. Uh, it's not for the lifestyle; it's uh, for the for the drink itself. It's a, it's a great wine, and uh, people now sell it as labels and you know limited edition this and co-branding that, which is a great shame uh, because uh, I think they don't really know what Champagne is all about. You know, Champagne was not always a rich region. Actually, it was a very poor region. People didn't really make too much money in Champagne. It's only generation of my father from the 65 onwards when Champagne became really global. It's the, uh, the uh, uh, easiness of traveling. You know, when my grandfather went to Australia uh, to sell champagne. He, he, he would leave for three or four months. He would take the boat, goes yes. to Australia, sell a bit, come back. Champagne was expensive to produce, you see, a lot of wastage. Hence, it was more expensive than uh, steel wine. You, you need to have better bottles. At the time, uh, bottles were not that good. So, I, you know... The, the workers in the in the um, uh, cellars would wear full face masks to protect them against exploding bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you had a huge wastage on champagne. Yes, hence the price. So it was not uh, you know made up. There is a reason. And when people came to sell champagne and growth of champagne into mm -hmm. a global brand throughout the 60s, 70s, mm. and, and, and 80s. What do you attribute that success to? Why is it that champagne is the byword for quality and for celebration and success? Well, at the, the mid-19th century, unlike any other wine region, families gave their name as a brand. You know, it was not Chateau... It was not a, like in Burgundy, a clue, etc. So it was the creation in the wine world of a brand, but they didn't do it you know, knowingly. It's because when Mr. Krug decided to do his champagne, leaving Germany because he thought it was too German, he proudly put his name on the bottle. So did all the other families. 
And because we blend, as you know, so uh, we don't have, uh, at the origin, we have one or two clothes in Champagne, but the idea was to blend, to make it better. And you would put your name on the label. So we were uh, probably the first wine region in the world to do that. I understand that blending is fundamental to, to Champagne production, but yet... Yes, vintage champagne is something I see more of recently, where individual vintages for individual years are are produced and marketed. Um, and I always thought that was curious. Is it a? Yeah, it's a non tradition. You know, the the blend and, and and vintages are blend. Normally, you blend grapes, you blend uh, places, and you blend years. Okay. Yes. In a vintage, you don't blend the year. That's it. But you still blend the others. But the ultimate non-blending champagne is uh, Salon, who's owned by Laurent Perrier, who does a fantastic job of it. And uh, Monsieur Salon, I think it's in the 20s, decided to do the opposite of everybody else. And he did it very well. And it still exists. And I love the exception, you know. Uh, it, it, only one Chardonnay, one village, one year, and not every year. So Salon has very few vintages. Uh, they produce very few uh, bottles and still do very few bottles. But uh, it, it, it's a fantastic history. I love it. Champagne is a great region for this uh, because uh, it's full of huge characters. Mad people. And do you think that's still the case? Do you still think that the wine industry and the champagne industry has the characters? Ah, <laughs> I think we we have lost a lot with corporation taking over. So I would say if they are characters, and I'm sure they are, they will be in the new generation of vineyard growers rather than in the big brands. You know, uh, because the big brands, the, the risk, the financial risks are too high to be uh, a bit uh, rock and roll. And uh, so, uh, and they bring a lot of people from marketing background and they bring a lot of people. It's not only champagne, you know, all the wines. And they forget the history. You know, I'm asked often like you are or... People, you know, what's the best wine in the world? They say, okay, well, you know, let's buy a bottle of uh, Petrus, okay? But your wife has left you. You lost your job. Yes. You have to sell the house. The Ferrari is gone, etc. You've got one bottle of Petrus. You drink it. Great. Now, you are sitting on a beach with a girl you love. There is a yeah. sunset and you drink Plonk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is the better wine? Well, um, if if I was to ask you, if you were to go to a desert island and you were allowed to bring one drink, any drink with you, what would you bring and why? The girl I love, then. <laughs> <laughs> it's your island, Victor. You can you can uh, yeah, 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 yeah. whatever you want, but you can only bring one drink. Okay. Ah, it has to be uh, champagne. A good champagne, an old champagne, and cases of it. (laughs) 
tell me which which champagne do you pick? Does it matter? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would take a classic brand or one of the new uh, comers like uh, Giro or uh, you know. They, they, in Champagne, you have huge diversity. What I will avoid is uh, what my grandfather, also uh, uh, called Victor, uh, used to say with some brands I won't name, he used to say, no tits, no hips. And that's all the, the Champagnes to avoid. <laughs> you need tits and hips in Champagne. Full-bodied. So to speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's fantastic, Victor. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, yeah. leaving you on your desert island, toasting your champagne uh, with the girl of your dreams. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. I'll speak to you soon. That was, I, I can see why we did an extended version of that one because that was. Brilliant. Like, learned so much about Champagne and, and even the fact that he's lived in the UK for 20 years, he said. Yes. But, like, literally years. did not try to soften his French accent at any point <laughs> to make any, you know, exceptions to that. I, I have to, where did you find this guy? Um, um, so, I found Victor on LinkedIn. Uh, so, LinkedIn is a weird and wonderful place, as we've discussed before. Um, and I have to say, I, I was trying very hard to, to push the podcast and just try and get, you know, any listeners to to tune in uh, and I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to see if there's any groups on LinkedIn for you know wine and spirits people you know people in the drinks industry and there's a couple there's actually there's hundreds of groups uh, but I came across a group called wine and spirits the number one group on LinkedIn and I thought well that's a bit ostentatious but I clicked on it and there are 96,000 people in this LinkedIn group so 96,000 people <laughs> fell for the uh, the title of this group and joined and it's a fantastically amazing weird dreadful uh, exciting place so uh, Victor founded the group actually at the very start of LinkedIn uh, and it's just an interesting place to be well, fair enough that's uh, probably the first time I've ever heard of LinkedIn as being an interesting place to be but <laughs> uh, but Victor has been a huge supporter of the podcast he's actually recommended our, our posts and our episodes nearly every time we have a full episode so we're delighted that Victor gives us that support but to be fair, I actually just dropped him a line and, and asked him for a little bit of help and advice. And he, he rang me uh, and we ended up having what I thought would be a 10 minute conversation that lasted an hour and a half. I just thought we should have Victor on the show. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. He really is. hundred uh, percent. And I'm very happy to have been educated as well. So I understand a hell of a lot more about champagne. Um, we'll see what happens next time. Thank you for listening to The Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at bizbevpod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash bizbevpod. Uh, why am I an erstwhile friend? Am I not still a friend? Erstwhile is like gone, forgotten in the past, isn't it? Former? Mm, I'm going to have to check that out. I didn't think so. I thought it just meant earnest. Oh, okay. okay right. Well, if, if, if that's what you meant, so I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, 
If I'm right, I'll leave it in, and if I'm wrong, I'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs>